Quick Trip is missing a boat with you, son. I ain't quitting. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you what. I'll come to your Quick Trip, you wait on me, and instead, when you check me out, you sing. For you, now you're paying. <laughs> and then I'll preach to everybody up there. I, I love it, man. Golly, son, you are good. I ain't kidding you, man. I love to hear you pray, pray and play and sing. And, uh, but I love to hear me preach, too, so let's get right to it. Okay. Now, last week, just kidding you. Now, last week, we laid out one of the greatest verses uh, in all of the Bible that deal with God's salvation to man. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a great verse because, you know, it's uh, um, John 3.16 is one of the greatest verses that you could ever get into. Uh, and it's a really good example of how you and I uh, should uh, develop um, the Bible and the verses within the Bible. And, you know, we talked about a trained eye. And we talked about using investigative skills when it comes to the Bible. Look at the Bible as a plot. Because the Bible is made up of many plots. And the way that you, you uh, you'd open them up is to look at them with a critical eye, an investigative eye. And, uh, you know, I showed, I showed you how to do that. And last week we learned one of the great realities that actually there's two John 3.16s in your Bible. And most people never get past the first one. And the Gospel of John, which is where we're at now there's John 3:16 and then I showed you that in the epistle that John wrote there's another John 3:16 and uh you know when I found that and I probably found that oh I don't know 25 30 years ago maybe longer than that I was doing a study of the life of John I remember you know I remember a great time when God just kind of rips the pages back and shows you and I remember when I was doing that <clears throat> and I was doing a character study just like you know, many of you do, and I, I young man asked the question Thursday night about Timothy, and I, I laid that out for you, how to do that character study, but that's what I was doing with John. <coughs> and I, I've told you before that John, without a doubt, is the most unique character in the Bible. Now, there's some great men in the Bible, some great women in the Bible, and some great stories in the Bible, but without a doubt, as far as you and me is concerned, John takes the, uh, takes the prize because he is without a doubt, when you begin to lay him out, you begin to see, not only in the gospel of John, but in everything else he writes, the uniqueness of, of who he is and not only how he writes, but what he writes and to who he writes it to. You know, he's your most perfect, total, complete picture of what my life should be and what your life should be as a New Testament Christian. When you observe him in the Bible, you're going to find that there's two men in the Bible that in a complete way, and I, I say this fully knowing that there's hundreds of people in the Bible that you can learn from, but if you want two fundamental examples of what your Christian life is or should be in the Old Testament, it's Abraham. You find in his life, and we've talked about it many times, and I'm not going to go through it all again, but we've talked about him so often, how where he starts and where he winds up. 
And if you would do a character study of Abraham, you will find out that he winds up being God's friend. And the real study is unearthing how he got there. Because that's how you need to get there. Then when you come to the New Testament, it's John. John is the only, and this is where his uniqueness begins. He's the only man in the Bible that when he sits down to write, he has the complete New Testament in front of him. Nobody else has that. He writes up there around 90 AD, and uh, when he does that, he has everything else before him. He bridges for you and for me the Old Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and goes the distance all the way up into 90 AD, well into the church age. And, uh, and, and the one word, and this is where it's so important, the one word that would define him should be the one word that defines us, and that is the word perspective. John, when he writes, has perspective of everything else that God does. And when he writes, he can perceive what he's writing in the light of everything that he's already has. He, as we, he has a complete understanding of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so do we, or we should. He understands when he's writing the gospel where that fits in, when he's writing 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John where that fits in, and when he writes the book of Revelation, he understands now how that fits in. And so should you and I. I, I, and I know you've heard some of this before, but it's a thing where, you know, I, I, you know when I was studying him, I learned so much. The first thing that caught my eye, and I know most of you know this, is that there was a special relationship that John had with Jesus over the other 12. And, and at the same time, I want to tell you, Jesus had a special relationship with John over the other 12. Now, I know, I know, I know, I know. We think that, uh, you know, God loves us all, and he does. And uh, we think that uh, God, uh, we're his children. He loves us all equally, and he does. But I am going to tell you, John had a relationship with Christ very clearly here over above the other 12. It's it's incredible. And um, for instance, over there in John chapter 13, verse 23, John is the only... Apostle of the twelve that Jesus says he loves. Now, I know Jesus loved them all. That's very obvious. But God singled him out and said, the disciple whom Jesus loved, for a reason. I mean, I've told you this before. You have the twelve apostles. One of them is a phony which tells me these 12 apostles are a picture of the, any given 12 Christians or Christianity in a whole. Certainly, I don't fall under the stupidity to think that everybody uh, into the sound of my voice, either here or out on the YouTube, is saved this morning. Jesus had his 12, and one of them was a phony. When you take him out of the equation, now you have 11 that are left. 
Now, those 11 will represent for us the body of Christianity. But in that 11, you'll find three men, Peter, James, and John, who what we would call the inner circle. In most Baptist churches today, they would be targeted as the clique. They experience more miracles with God. They see the power of God on the Mount Transfiguration when the rising of Jairus' daughter, when there's great miracles that he performs. I don't know where the rest of them are, but you'll always find Peter, James, and John. They're that inner circle. And with the body of Christianity, certainly with any church, you're going to find those who are phony. You're going to find those who are like uh, the, uh, the eleven. And then within that 11, you're going to find the three. They experience more. They understand more. They are used more of God, and they're found in places where God does great things while everybody else is (laughs) wherever they're at. But out of that three, only one goes the distance. When Christ is crucified, James is wherever he's at, Peter, we know where he's at. He is around the fire and he betrays the Lord. And when Christ is being crucified on the cross, the only one that goes the distance with him is John. At the Last Supper, which is found in Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 and 25, you'll find that the Apostle John does something that no other man in the Bible does. And the only other person that can do that would be a New Testament Christian. Nobody in the Old Testament could. Nobody else in the Bible does. Only John is recorded in doing this, and the only other person on this planet could do that would be a New Testament Christian in the church age. You know what he did at the Last Supper? He leans over and put his head on the breast of the Lord Jesus, and he heard the very heartbeat of God. Nobody else in the Bible got that privilege. And John represents for us what your life and my life should be because for you and for me, the real key to being what God wants you to be is getting God's heartbeat. Now, you would think that God's heartbeat is salvation or God's heartbeat is this. God's heartbeat is truth. And he laid his head on the very breast of the Lord Jesus Christ and he heard the heartbeat of God Almighty encased in the Son of God. And I want to tell you, the only way that you and I can hear that today is through the heart of God, God's Word. This is why men and women in this church and around the world will give their lives for everything through a New Testament local church to do what God's called them to do. You know why? They heard what most people never hear today, and that is the very heartbeat of God. I don't have time to develop that today, but if you would go back to Song of Sodom in chapter 2, verse 6, where Christ is talking about how much he loves the bride, you would actually find an illustration right there of what John is doing in Matthew chapter 26. But we don't have time to do that today. You know, in John chapter 19, verse 26, Jesus is now on the cross. And before he dies, John is there. 
And before he dies, he looks down to him, and John is there, and the mother of Jesus is there, Mary. And Mary is a type of the nation of Israel. If you'd want to study a picture of Israel, study Mary. And when he's on that cross, before he dies, as we're moving into the church age, John, uh, Christ looks at John, a type of the New Testament Christian, and he gives ownership to take care of his mother. He says, woman, behold thy son. John, behold thy mother. Most people read that and say that was a nice little thing. You don't get it. In Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 10, and Romans chapter 11, you understand that we as a New Testament church have the custodianship of the nation of Israel. And that's what Jesus was doing here with John. And as I studied him, as I laid him out, you see, when I preached last week and when I preached through the gospel of John, you know, it's, it started for me way, way, way back before the Sunday before, or the week before I preach it. I've been through this stuff 30, 40 years ago. This stuff is stuff that I have not just put the notes in my Bible. <laughs> I put these principles in my life. And they work. And I'll tell you something else. And I, I made a, just a, a, a reference to this a couple of weeks back. John writes five books. And those five books for us form the five wisdom books in the New Testament. And if you know anything about your Bible, you know there's five wisdom books in the Old Testament. And the five books in the Old Testament will match up to John's five books in the New Testament. And away we go. The Gospel of John, that represents Psalms, the heart of God. First John matches Song of Solomon the fellowship and the intimacy we have with Christ through our walk. Second John matches the book of Ecclesiastes, truth in a world where there is no truth. Third John matches Proverbs because in Proverbs you have a wise man and a foolish man. And lo and behold, in third John you have a wise man and a foolish man. And then the book of Revelation matches the book of Job, the tribulation period. Now, anybody with any understanding would immediately see the connection of all this. A New Testament child of God, who John is an example of, should have the wisdom of God in the Old Testament and the wisdom of God in the New Testament. In other words, you ought to have down the wisdom books in the Old Testament that will point you to where the nation of Israel is and what you can learn, but that ain't enough. You've got to get the wisdom books in the New Testament. And this is what John represents. He, he, he has both Old Testament and New Testament before him when he writes. He has complete perception. He perceives. Now, watch this. Got to love this. In the Bible, in the book of Proverbs, we see a, in Proverbs chapter 5 and Proverbs chapter 7, we see what the Bible tells us a story of about a young man who was void of understanding. And the analogy in that story is he's a goofy little guy, comes to the big city, goes out, walks around at night, and guess in the twilight of the night who's working the corner? Prostitute. 
lady of the evening. And the Bible goes into great detail to say that how that she, and, and when you study it, this hooker's religious. She talks about God and how she's paid her vows and she, she, she entices him with her words. She's all painted up. And she entices him and she, her goal is to destroy him. Now that story probably unfolds itself literally in every big city uh, in, the, in the country today, if not around the world. But the picture is that this harlot is a picture of false teaching that is permeates the world trying to destroy the young man who is God's chosen, the minister for him, and she knows that if she can induce him, to seduce him, to t- talk to him, to flatter him, to say all of those things and appeal to his human side, she can destroy him. Now, why did I tell that story? Because the greatest type of you and me in the New Testament is the, is the man John. So in the world today, if a hooker or a prostitute, when she picks up her client, you know what she calls him? She calls him a John. You cannot get away from the Bible. That's how it works. That's how it works. And uh, so we saw last week, or I should say we observed last week, uh, in our two John 3.16s, the first John 3.16 was a blanket statement of God's salvation to the world. And the second John 3.16 defined the first one for us and told us that uh, we need to perceive the love of God. And I showed you the connection between the Gospel of John and the Epistle of John and also a Second John, Third John, and the book of Revelation. I would call these five books in the New Testament that he writes, the wisdom books, I would call them the five essentials of New Testament Christianity. Because when you look at the Gospel of John, you have a record of the first coming of Christ, God's declaring salvation to the world. When you go to 1 John, you have then our fellowship with God after salvation and how that our walk with God depends on our perception of the blanket statement of the 1 John 3.16. When I would look at 2 John and 3 John, you will find that they deal with the perspective of the elect lady. That will be the nation of Israel. Where one talks about the elect lady, the other one talks about, as I said already, uh, two men, one's wise and one's a fool. And that would be a picture of my understanding of the nation of Israel. And then the fifth book that he writes is the book of Revelation, and that is the capstone of the Bible. And in the book of Revelation, you clearly see the Old Testament and the New Testament being pulled together. You see how God now uses the Old Testament to reveal the New Testament, and within the New Testament, the Old Testament also is revealed. The two go together. And you find now God's eternal purpose of what His original plan was and how it's going to finish out. Those are the five essentials. And so as I laid out John... I mean, without a New Testament Christian having those five areas down, 
And, and, I, and let me just say this. I, I, I know fully well that some of you here do not have that. Those that have been in Bible Institute, those that have been with me for, you know, 20, 30 years and been around, I know you got it. I get it. I mean, I'm, in that sense, I'm preaching to the choir. But this has got to be your goals. This is my goal in giving you the Bible. This is my goal in Bible Institute. We had a great time yesterday. I taught you how to look at Jesus to keep from being stumbling. I showed you two ways out of Hebrews chapter 12 that you do that. One is how you look at Christ. The other one is what you consider about him. Now, I don't know what you did yesterday morning, and this is certainly not a criticism, but this was fine gold sprinkled on you yesterday. Not because I did it, because you got one of the greatest keys to keep you plugged in. And when a New Testament Christian doesn't have these five areas down, and I know that not all of you do, but I'm, I'm going to help you get there if you want to. You will in time. So don't, if I'm saying this and you don't have it, don't go beat yourself up. If you want it, I'll help you get there. But what I am saying, if you don't get them down in your life at some point, you don't have anything. Because these five things form the baseline of the Bible. You take these five things and then you build on them. All the time you look at John as the example. And as I laid out John, I began to see, for my own self so many years ago, I began to see everything that he was as a picture to me. And when I give you this stuff, I ain't giving you this stuff because, uh, you know, it's just something I read someplace. I give you this stuff because this is what worked for me. I'm not interested, though I read a lot of books and I have read a lot of books and I get a lot of material, the only thing I'm really interested in to give you is what I know works for me because you're no better than me and I don't know better than you and what all my struggles are are your struggles and I know the only way through this thing for you is the same way I had to find my way. And that's how I found my two John 3.16s. And that gave me my perception. From that point on, I began to perceive. And those two verses are so true of all of us. Most of God's people can get the first one, the fact that God loved man and gave himself for it, the love of God, but very few ever perceive it and do with it what God wants done the way he wants it done. Being that living sacrifice for God based on our understanding of his sacrifice for us. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16 are two of the most incredible verses in all of the Bible. And I found it many, many, many years ago, and I might be able to tell you that it has changed everything how I've looked at things. And I tell you, as I said last week, you need to learn not just to see. You need to learn to observe because the two are not the same. Now today, this is going to be a very practical lesson. Uh, we have had some deep things here the last couple of weeks and uh, some good things of laying out the Bible and showing you how the... It, but today is going to get more back to a practical side and that's what I try to do. I don't try to be one thing all the time. There's some guys that that's all they do is practical stuff. Other guys, all they do is the doctrinal stuff, and you can't do that. You've got to be able to switch it up, match it up, and, and, and blend it together. So we're going to read now back into, into John chapter 3, and believe it or not, 
we're going to go through 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21. I know it's hard to believe, but we're going to do it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to contemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. One time as a young preacher, I was preaching on this, and I, I had a tough time with my words. And, and, you know, because I was excited and all this stuff, you know, and I was reading that verse and I said, and this is the condemnation that light has come into the world that men love darkness rather than light because their sneeds were devil. <laughs> so I got it right this time. But I ain't sure I don't like it the other way. But anyway, uh, for everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light that his deeds may be made manifest that are wrought in God. For I pray, and right after I pray, and you can even do it while I'm praying, I'll pray. You Look, look through this, what I read. Forget John 3.16, we covered that one. But look down through the rest of these verses and just with a trained eye, practice a little bit. Let's see if you can figure out with some of this what jumps out at me is where I'm going. Let's, let's work this together. And if you don't get it, don't feel bad. You'll learn to get it in time. But let's just, you know, if I just gave it to you without little exercise involved, you know, you, you wouldn't get anything. So I'll pray. Here we go. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. We thank you for our time today. Thank you for the folks that have showed up. Pray your blessings upon us today, Lord, as we open up this book. And Lord, truly, the Gospel of John is an incredible book. And Lord, it, it bridges so many, so many gaps it lays out so many truths that we as your people need to understand. Lord, he is such a, a pertinent example of what all of our lives should be. And Father, we, we ask you now to open up our hearts, open up our minds, because we know that if the Holy Spirit of God doesn't open up the Scriptures, we'll, we'll never get anything out of it. So we ask you today to do that. In Jesus' name, for our sake, we ask it. Amen. Now we have here in these verses, what we have here, I should say, is an understanding of how God works in our lives before salvation, but also after salvation. It really is one of those great places that explains to us what God sees when he looks at us or how he sees us. Now, verse 16, we've covered, for God so loved the world. Okay, we got that one. Let's look at verse 17. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, what do you see when you see that verse? I'll tell you what I see. If there ever was one verse that showed man's misconception of God, it would be this verse. People today, saved people and lost people, they will blame God for everything. When some tragedy happens, when somebody dies, the death of a child, the death of a mother, the death of a father, son or daughter, some terrible catastrophe, 
we will blame God for allowing it to happen. We always fall back on that. And of course, that goes all the way back to Adam. After they fell, when God came to him and said, Adam, what did you do? You know what Adam said? He said, well, God, the woman that you gave me, blamed it on God. We already saw back in the book of Job many times how when Job is going through what he goes through, his wife is the great comfort that she needs to be, that when he's going everything, she and her advice to him is to curse God and die. We already saw it a couple of weeks ago in the Old Testament how that they always blame Moses, the leader, for everything that went wrong. And uh, even insurance companies today. There's things about your house even after you pay your house insurance that if something happens, they won't cover it because you know what they call it? An act of God. They blame it on God. And people all through their life, I, I, I saved and lost, because they do not perceive the love of God. They have no understanding of this verse. They'll go through their life, and I've seen God's people over some issue uh, in their life, get mad at God, blame God, and stay that way the rest of their lives. I was telling the people in Institute the other yesterday, I was watching a documentary on Auschwitz and the Holocaust. And this was done back in the 70s, the early 70s, when many of the Holocaust victims were still alive. And uh, they were talking, and they were the Jews, old men now were talking, and the women, and they could not understand. They, they, they couldn't understand why God would let that happen to them. And they would say, we prayed to God for deliverance. We asked God for this, and we asked God for that. And one of them said, to this day, I do not know why God did not hear our cry. Now, the commentator of that had no answer because he's got no understanding. I can answer that question in three seconds or less. You know why didn't hear, God didn't hear your cry? Because on the cross, you didn't hear his sons. In fact, when you look at the death of Christ, your two statements were, we have no king but Caesar, and his blood be upon us and our people. But they don't get that. They don't get it. They don't get it, and most of God's people don't get it. And, uh, you, know, it's a, you know, it's a thing where uh, some of God's people, they think that God is lurking around the corner to give you cancer. They think that God is lurking around the corner to give you some terrible disease. And, of course, the reason for this mindset is what we looked at last week. They get John 3.16 down about the universal salvation of God dying for man. How wonderful. But they'll never get 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 down. They have no perspective of the love of God and what he has for them. You know, I've said this many, many times. There's two fundamental issues that all men have and women, say people. And the first one is they do not understand how God sees you. And the second big problem is you don't know how to look at him. Yet you say you're saved. I believe you are. You have a relationship. You're like a guy who got a mail-order bride from Russia or someplace, you know, and she shows up here and you get married to her, but you know nothing about her. And if she came from a foreign country like Russia, she doesn't even speak the language. So now you're married to a woman she doesn't speak English, you don't speak Russian, and now you're going to have a relationship? You see, this is the problem with God's people. 
you're not speaking his language. No perspective. Having God's love but never understanding it, perceiving it. That'll be as worthless as most of God's people in churches today. Our verse says when God came into the world, his purpose was not to condemn man, but to give him his salvation. You know why God came? God came to save you and me from ourselves. Because no matter how we want to blame God to get out from under our responsibility, we are the problem today. But God's people, people today, God's people have so little understanding of God and, and how he works. And, I, and I'm telling you, God's original plan that he had in mind, it, it never included cancer. It never included leukemia. It never included lymphoma, heart attacks, strokes, nursing homes, hospice care, funeral homes, crematoriums, graveyards, diabetes. His original plan never took into account that there'd ever be a hurricane, and now to stay politically correct, a hemicane. <laughs> he, he never took into account that there would be drought, that there would be tornadoes, that would there be cyclones, that there would be floods, that would there be tsunamis, that would be forest fires, that there would be drought, that there would be war. He never in his plan said, I need to have a United Nations. He never in his plan looked at communism going to be a threat. He never looked in his plan as, as uh, you know, uh, socialism to be a threat. He never looked in his plan that capitalism was going to be a problem or fascism and he certainly didn't need to put a place there for Democrats and Republicans. God's plan didn't need doctors. It didn't need your six-month medical checkup. In God's plan, there was no Alzheimer's. There was no dementia. There was no need for radiologists, no hospitals. You see, his plan was a perfect world. It was a perfect world where man could enjoy all of God's creation and have eternal fellowship with God. And when God put Adam and Eve down here in the garden, that's what, exactly what his plan was and what he intended. A perfect world with perfect weather, with perfect health, with perfect animals, a perfect creation. But when you study it and you lay it out, we went from a perfect world to a perfect storm. And here's where it really starts, Genesis chapter 3. You see, there's something about God you need to know. And God created this wonderful plan. He created this beautiful utopia in this garden. And he put two people down in it, Adam and Eve. But there's a characteristic of God and God's holiness that you need to understand. And that is that God will not force you to love him. No man who finds a beautiful woman that he wants to, her to love him would be satisfied if he went to, you know, the witch doctor and got love potion number nine, and as long as she drank some every day, she'd stay in love with you, and the day she quit drinking it, then she would say, ooh, I don't want anything to do with you. That would not be the love you want. We want people to love us because they choose to. Well, that's the way God is. So God gave man a free will. 
God wants you and me. And, and really, if you look at that chart over there, that is the whole perspective of God's plan. Notice it starts in a garden and it ends in a garden. And everything in between for 6,000 years that is recorded, we could get into a million things that's going on, but fundamentally, you know what it is? Every man, every woman getting to choose if they want to pick back up at the end where God was going to start here. So God created this little parentheses in time to give you and me the choice through our own free will. And man, you and me, I'll tell you what our problem is. You see, I like preaching messages like this because some messages, and I try to be careful with this, I hate to say you, I like to say us, because I don't want to ever give the impression that it's you and not me. If the truth was known, it's probably more me than you, but that's beside the point. Confess your faults one to another. That's it. That's all you're going to get. But anyway, you know what our problem is? Every one of us. And I don't care how spiritual you think you are. I don't care how long you've been in the Bible. We all got an old sin nature. And that old sin nature will always fundamentally go back to the first sin in the Bible. You know what the first sin in the Bible was? Somebody thinking they knew more about it than God did. You know, that's every one of our problems. I thank God for GPSs. There's some things in this world that make life easier. A GPS is one of them. But I'm going to be honest with you. Every time it tells me to go this way, I'm thinking in my mind I know a better way to go. <laughs> That's human nature. That goes back all the way to Genesis 3. And, and, and we all think man, man always thinks he has a better plan than God, so man ruined God's plan. And now man, the mess we're in today in the world, in America, hey, let's simplify it. You know what it is? This country was founded on the Word of God. This country was founded on the principles of the Word of God. As founding fathers believed the very Bible you're holding, and they believed God was who he was. And look where we're at today. You know why? Because man today thinks he knows more about it than God does. That's the problem with the world. That's the problem with America. And you take God's people that are just like that. You know what you are? And I love you. But you know what you are? You're just a very small version of that big version of the world. So we go through our lives. We have a Bible. The Bible tells us what to do. It tells us what the church is. It tells us what this is. It tells us how to get into ministry. It tells us how to do this, how to do that, how to have a relationship, how to find a spouse, how to do this, how to do everything. And we get in a mess. Why? I mean, you got a book that tells you everything you need to know that you would never have an issue. Now, look at our lives today. You know why? We think we know more than God does. That's been the number one issue all down through history. You know, parents, I, I laugh at parents sometimes. <coughs> you know, they'll, they'll come to me and they'll say, well, I'm just having trouble with my teenage kid. My teenage kid, you know, he thinks he won't listen to me. He won't follow what I'm saying. He thinks he knows more about life than we do. He hasn't paid a bill. He hasn't done this. He hasn't got out in the world. He lives under our roof, and he just thinks he will not listen to us, and he just thinks he knows more about life than, than we do. And I look at that, and I think to myself, in most cases, well, that's what you do with God. That's what we do with God. That's what we, they do it to their earthly father. We do it to our heavenly father. We eternally think we got a better plan than God. 
And that's going to mess your kids up. But hey, don't blame it on them. It's going to mess us up. We're no different than them. We'll do the exact same thing. It was man who threw this world into a complete disaster. So when it goes bad because of man's rebellion and him not wanting to take responsibility for it, yeah, we blame God for it. It's his fault. Like Moses in Numbers chapter 21. Like people will do with you in the ministry. That story of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, all a complete and total picture of where we're at today. Most people just don't see it. We've talked a lot about character studies and about stories and types. Well, here's one for you, Adam and Eve. Adam, now watch this. This is why you and me are in the mess that we're in. Adam's a type of Christ. Eve's a type of the church. The devil, well, he's the devil. But when he comes to Eve who's a type of the church, he comes when Adam, who's a type of Christ, isn't at home. You see, that's a picture of the church age. All Eve had to know what she was supposed to do and not do was what God had told her. And Christ is not here today to tap you on the shoulder. All you have to tell you what you should do and shouldn't do is sitting in your laps today what God told you. All Eve had to do was listen to what he said and said, you know what, <laughs> I, I, that doesn't exactly match up. Uh, you got to now the reversed revision because that ain't what God told me. But she didn't. And through the devil destroying Eve, type of the church, here it comes, here it comes. Gospel according to Genesis 3. And as the devil destroyed Eve, a type of the church, just like he destroys the church today, by simply saying, yea, hath God said, and then changed what God said, and she fell for it. And your church and your pastor falls for it, and most of God's people fall for it. So, here it is. Eve, a type of the church, Adam, a type of Christ, the devil, <laughs> the devil, he shows up when Adam is not there. He deceives her. He beguiles her. She falls for it, and she brings the world into sin. And then when Adam comes home, type of Christ, he suddenly sees that Snow White is not Snow White anymore. The seven dwarfs have showed up. And you know what he did as a type of Christ? The same thing the Lord Jesus Christ did when he saw our condition. He will, she, she was deceived in the transgression, but Adam sinned willfully. You know why he sinned willfully? Because he's a type of Christ, and he saw that his bride was now dead, so he died for her. And when your Christ saw you and me, his bride, dead in the trespasses of sin, because while he was away in the church age, the devil came in and destroyed it. You know what he did? He died for you and for me gospel according to Genesis. Can't beat the book, man. You just can't. 
So when man disobeys God, he brought a curse on man. And not just a curse on man, but a curse on all the, all the earth. You go to Romans chapter 8, verses 19, 20 through 23, and you'll see how bad this thing is. That curse didn't just fall on mankind, it fell on earth. That's why we have tornadoes now. That's why we have thorn bushes now. That's why we have the disease and the sickness that we have. It was all brought in because of sin. And it's not just that. The Bible says that all of God's creation groaneth. And Romans chapter 8 says that the whole earth is waiting for the restoration and the second coming of Christ. We hear a lot today about global warming. We hear a lot today about the ozone layer being destroyed to keep out the solar radiation, cosmic radiation. We're concerned about air pollution. They want to get away with all the carbon combustion cars and put everybody on electric cars. Uh, the, you know, the people are worrying about the, the, the natural forests that are being um, destroyed. Let me tell you something. Man has abused this old earth for 6,000 years. And this earth is just not going to take much more of it. And I'm telling you, somebody asked me if I believed in global warming. You bet I do. Book of Revelation, the Bible says the sun's going to get seven times hotter in the tribulation. You bet I believe it. It's going to warm this globe. Now, the ozone layer being destroyed, ladies, that's your fault because they've already come out and proven the fact that it's all your hairspray. <laughs> Every time you're up there, and I don't think women use hairspray anymore, do they? Everybody, nah, everybody's into that natural, some people do, but most people are into that natural wet look. You know, like you just stepped out of the shower, your hair is still wet, you know? I mean, it's, a, it's that free-blown look now, you know? But back in the day, hairspray was the deal. It's okay. The ozone layer is already gone, so you've done your damage. I remember old Mel Sabaka used to preach about that, and he would get up there and he would talk about the fact that he would tell through the story how, Gene, if you're listening to this, you'll remember the story, how that his wife, you know, he, he would go upstairs to get ready for church, and he'd have to put a gas mask on because he was spraying so much. You know, back then, women's hair, it, it was like it was... It, it was like a helmet. I don't know how else to say it. It was hard. You know, I mean, if you, if you went and get your hair done, they did it with a chisel. I mean, it was, it was, it was, that hairspray just locked it down. And old Mel used to say, I went into the bathroom the other day and, and, and they were getting ready for church and I went, <coughs> it was just like, I told my wife, if you prayed as much as you sprayed, there'd be a revival, see. Now, I know most women don't do that anymore, and I, I praise the Lord for that. You look great today. You really do. You know, you just, uh, you know, I, I, I look at you and I say, who does your hair? The north wind? It looks really good. Anyway. So, everything's a mess. And it's simply a mess because the longer, the longer man goes, thinking he knows better than God, the worse it's all going to get. Now, you think I'm talking about the world? No, I'm talking about God's people. I'm going to tell you right now, the way the world is going in America and around the world, there's only one reason for that. That's because Christianity is in the mess that it's in. We're the, we're the salt. We're the preserving factor of any country, any nation, or the world. And when the salt loses its savor, then this is what you have. Now look at verse 19. 
Now this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Now you see that goes back to Genesis chapter 1 verse 4, doesn't it? Where God divided the light from the darkness. And in 1 John chapter 1 verses 3 through 9, uh, you get the definition of it. That light shineth in darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. See how it works? And you want to get this simple truth. Men in darkness, saved or lost, cannot comprehend the light. And 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says that our fellowship with him is based on us walking in the light as he is in the light. And when you don't have the light and you can't comprehend it, then there's no, there's no walk. Now, observe. John chapter, the gospel of John chapter 1, verse 5 talks about the light for salvation. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 talks about, about the light for fellowship after salvation. See how that works? And we are to stay out of the darkness and we're to walk into the light. That's what the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 5, that we should be children of the day and not children of the night. And he's talking about a saved person. A saved person can be a children of the night that's saved. And I want you to know it was man from Genesis 3 to today, saved or lost, who rejected the light and take darkness. Look at verse 20. What a great commentary on man, both saved and lost. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light. Neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Now that's, a, that's an unsaved man, but it's also a saved man, if you've been any work in the ministry. Saved man, an unsaved man who is in the flesh and lives in sin, a saved man who walks after the flesh and does the works of the flesh, and the difference is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9, 1 Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, for anybody that wants to study it out. Hey, don't kid yourself, not for a second. The church age is full of Christians today, saved people who claim to be saved, who hate that book so desperately that they go to a church uh, and they'll get a pastor uh, and he preaches the truth and they don't like it. So they leave and they'll go find a church and a pastor where he, even if he preaches the truth, it's a watered down version. He's not going to get in your face. He's not going to ruffle your feathers. Uh, he may use the devil's Bible or he may use the King James Bible, but he's never going to offend anybody. It's always going to be a teaching thing, and he's never going to get up there and get in your face. Let me tell you something. If you go to any church, and you go to the services for any length of time, and you feel good about yourself, you're in the wrong church. May I say it? There's nothing good about any of us. And you need the, the Word of God coming down your street. Now, for an unsaved man, you know what he does? He'll spend his whole life. He'll get $300,000 worth of education. He'll do every good thing he can think of, all for the purpose of getting him around the condemnation of the truth of the Word of God. That old Bible says in Proverbs 19.21, you better mark it down. There are many devices in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. And the one word they all hate, Saved and lost. One little word in verse 20. Did you pick it up yet? One little word that they just can't stand. And it's the word reproved. 
deeds be reproved, verse 20. One of the biggest little words in all of Christianity today. Now, get this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, familiar verse. I get that. All Scripture is driven by inspiration and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instructions in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now, I want you to see this. For the Christian, for the child of God, all Scripture is given for inspiration. Watch the order. Number one, doctrine. Number two, reproof. Once you get the truth of the doctrine and that thing reproves you, then and only then can you get correction and take instruction in righteousness. Get it down clearly. You teach people doctrine, that is truth. That truth will reprove them where they are wrong, and if they take the reproof and change about them what needs to be changed, then you can correct them and you can instruct them in righteousness. If they reject reproof, John chapter 3, verse 20, then they're in darkness and you cannot correct them nor instruct them in righteousness. You have to be reproved first, whether you're saved or whether you're lost. And brother, if that doesn't answer a lot of questions in Christianity today, I don't know what does. This idea that you can just do whatever you want to do, go wherever you want to go, and be whatever you want to be, and still call yourself a Christian. I'm telling you right now, you got to get doctrine first. That's truth. That doctrine will reprove you, and only after you accept that reproof that reproves your deeds are you able to get corrected and instruction in righteousness. Now look at verse 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now that's a great verse. It says that if a man is not saved, he's as good as in hell right now. John chapter 3, same chapter, a few verses down, verse 36 says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. An unsaved man is as good right now as in hell with the door locked, the key lost, and the lock rusted up. And he ain't going to change that unless he takes the reproof. That's the state of an unsaved man. You see it again in John chapter 8, verse 44. Year of your father the devil, and the lust of your fathers ye will do, because he's in darkness. He was a murderer from the beginning. That goes back to Genesis chapter 1. Everybody thinks that that's talking about Cain, a kill and Abel. Well, it's, it, it, he killed Cain and Abel, no, no question about that, but he killed two other people spiritually before Cain and Abel were ever born. He killed Adam and Eve, and the day thou eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. He was a murderer from the beginning, the original sin, and abode not in the truth. So he had the truth, he just didn't abide in it. 
So when he comes and says, yea, hath God said, then he just conveniently changed what God said and Eve didn't catch it. Can't blame Eve. percent <laughs> of God's people don't catch it today either. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. The first lie found in your Bibles in Genesis chapter 3. You know what it was a lie about? What God said. What God said. And that lie has been propagated down through history and added to and changed and formatted and used in so many different ways. Incredible. You know, in the Bible... The reason why people don't like the Bible, because it's too exact. In the Bible, the reason why it's so clear and simple, and it's so easy and not hard, and the reason is when it comes to God, the Bible, man, all you have is two choices. And and, and people don't like that. They want to make it theological. They want to get lost in all the minutiae of the Bible and Christianity and the Dead Sea Scrolls and this or that. And they're always looking for something that may add to what they really want to be. And that's why they hate that book that they've got you got in your lap today. Because that book doesn't cut them any slack. That book doesn't give them any latitude. That book doesn't allow them to do what we like to do, and that is to put our plan over God's plan. This is why people leave church, good Bible-believing churches, because the Word of God is a light. And when they don't want to reprove their deeds and they want to keep on going the way they're going, they're not going to stay in the light. And the reason why they hate the Bible, saved or lost, is because the Bible only gives you two choices, light or darkness. And every man and every woman on planet Earth, saved or lost, will fall on one side or the other. For the shout of God, it's truth and reproof. And the reason why they hate the Bible and don't want to be around the preaching of the Bible and they'll find a church where a guy is a nice guy, but he's never going to get in their face. He's never going to hold them accountable. Most of the churches are very small, you know, and uh, the guy doesn't really know what he's doing anyhow, so he wants everybody he can get to come to church, and the last thing he's going to do is make somebody mad because they leave. You see, that's backwards, the first thing a pastor should do is to preach to make everybody leave. And then the one that stays, you have something. You don't preach a church so everybody stays. Well, that's a mess. You preach a church where you have to look deep inside yourself and realize that you need reproved. And then you either decide, yeah, I'm going to, or no, I'm not. And the rest of it takes care of itself. And when you focus on that, Instead of focusing on making it... Now, I want you to be happy. I mean, come on. Sure I do. I mean, I, I want you to be a happy person. I really do. I, I love your little face mask back there. It's got a little smiley face on it. I like that. You know, you know Forrest Gump started that. You do know that, don't you? But anyway. Uh, yeah, you're a happy person. Most of you are happy people. Uh, you know what? We, we don't have any grumpy people around here anymore. 
uh, the grumpy bears went to the grumpy bear playground and that's where they're hanging out with the other grumpy bears. I get that. I want you to be happy. I do. I mean, when you walk down those stairs, I want you to be singing in your heart, I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. I want you to get up on Sunday morning or Bible Institute or Thursday night Bible study and I want you to wake up and you know your alarm goes off and it's 7.30 or 6.30 or whatever you decide to get up and you kind of lay there for a minute and then you look over and then you suddenly realize that it's Sunday morning. And boy, you'd have thought somebody called you and just told you you won the lottery. You're out of bed, up straight. I mean, you're just out of that thing Nothing gets you down. You get your cup of coffee. That always helps. And then you're just, you know, you're getting ready and you're anticipating being here and you know you're going to get something from God and you're praying and talking and singing and all those things and you're just slobbering with anticipation. And you walk down those steps, man, and you come in and you find your seat and you sit down there and you open it up and you've got your little ready to go and you're going to get it all down and you're sitting there and then your mind is saying, Lord, give me what you have. Give me what I can have today. I'm here. I want something from you. Give me something. And yet some of God's people in most churches come into their churches that look like they've been baptized in dill pickle juice. I mean, they're just about as shriveled in their spirit as could be. You know why? Because you got no joy. I want you to be happy. But you know where real happiness comes from, joy comes from? It's knowing that you're right with God. And know how you know you're right with God this morning? Here it comes. Because you love reproof. Your children, and you as a parent, especially you young parents, you ought to train your children Notice I didn't say raise your children. You ought to train your children that getting out of fellowship with mom and dad is the most terrible, worst thing that could ever happen to them. Because they're going to be faced with a lot of things out there in the world, and if you don't do your job right, they're not going to give a flip about disappointing you breaking fellowship with you, and in most cases, the reason why they don't is because they really don't have any fellowship to begin with. And you know what happens? They start fellowshipping with somebody else. A mom and dad had to train that child up to the point where when they do something wrong, not only do they know it's wrong, but they're not just sorry that they got caught. They're sorry because they now understand that what they did broke fellowship with mom and dad because they have a standard. And when you train them that way, you can just move that right into their relationship with Jesus Christ. And that ought to really be the kicker for all of us. Because the world will come after you just like it's going to come after your child. And if a child is not built by the parents to have fellowship with them as number one and and guard that above all else, that ought to be exactly what we do with our fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. There should be nothing out there. And when we break it, it ought to just grieve us, like it did David. Grieve us to the point that we can't wait to get, get it corrected. But you know how you get the correction? Reproof. And when you hate reproof, you'll never get corrected. And this is why your children will grow up and hate correction. And you can't do anything with them. You know why? Because you failed in reproving him. And it's just the way that it works. And it's not complicated. 
And, uh, you know, in a Bible truth and somebody preaching it will turn on the lights. And, uh, you know, and it's a thing where, you know, and this is not a very good example, but it's a graphic one and I like it. It's like if you lived in a sleazy apartment place someplace, you know, and at 3 o'clock in the morning you had to get a drink of water and you went into the kitchen and you turn the light on and suddenly 30 cockroaches run for the darkness. That's what the Word of God does. It scatters us. And it's a thing where, you know, it, 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 it defines us. And it's a thing where, you know, uh, we, we ought to allow the light to do what the light God intended it to do. And that is shine on us. You are all these Christians out there, oh God, make your face to shine upon us. Yeah, just keep it on my face, Lord. Don't get it down in my heart. Now look at verse 20 and 21. I'll just stop here. Look at this one for a minute. I don't know how your scorecard looks, but look at this one, these two. Don't tell me, but tell me what you see there. One of the greatest truths you're ever going to find right there in verse uh, uh, 20 and 21. Now I'm going to read it. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light. That pretty much takes care of things, doesn't it? Neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Boy, that's self-explanatory. Now, that is why God's people, and unsaved people, but that's why God's people won't get what's right and do what's right. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest. Ah, that's what we all need. When you get into the Word of God, it doesn't let you hide. It manifests your deeds that they are wrought in God. Now, that's a saved person. An unsaved man's deeds aren't wrought in God, but a saved person's deeds are. All right, trained eye. What do you see? I'll tell you what I see. Of those two verses, I'll tell you right now, it's not that you have the truth. That makes no difference here. Most of God's people have the truth. It's not the fact that you believe the truth. It's not even a fact that you preach the truth. Verse 21, the key is doeth truth. Do you do what the Bible says? See, God's people are caught up in the first three. Oh, I have the Word of God. Don't talk to me about it. I have the Bible. I love the Bible. Well, I preach the Bible. Really? But do you do it? Do you do it? Or do you, like most of God's people, pick and choose what works for you? Now, as a child of God, you don't have that luxury. We either take it all. It's very clear now, isn't it? We either take it all or we don't take any of it. And you see, here's what God's people have done. The Bible is so clear that it's light or it's darkness. I've laid that out for you so clearly now. Now, let me tell you what we all do. We like to fabricate the twilight zone of Christianity. You know, a place where it isn't real dark, but it isn't real light. A place where we just kind of, 
like the guy told me, I said, are you, how you doing? Are you in fellowship? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in fellowship and I'm kind of not in fellowship. See, that's the twilight zone. Do, 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 do. That's the twilight zone. Christians fabricate that. You know why they fabricate that? Because you hate the light. You don't want to get your deeds reproved, so you make up something that isn't real so you can pretend you're okay instead of doing truth. So you create this not too bright, not too dark. It's a place where I just live, you know, where I'm not real in the light, but I'm not really in the dark. I'm just kind of in the, in the middle. There is no middle. Jesus said, he that is not with me is against me. It's just that simple. You didn't read any Twilight Zone in anything that I told you today or read to you. It's either light or darkness, and you will love the one or you will hate it. You'll either love darkness or you'll hate darkness. You'll love the light or you'll hate the light. And the reason why you hate the light, because your deeds are evil. So, so you can maintain that you're a Christian, so you can pretend in your mind, in your heart, you're okay, so you don't have to really get down to the nuts and bolts of doing truth. You fabricate this little twilight zone place where you can just kind of exist. And you don't have to worry about your deeds being exposed by the light because you have convinced yourself that you are okay. Kid me, man. Say, how do you know that? Because I know me. He says, everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deed should be reproved. There it is. You're not going to do the word of God. You're gonna, you're gonna, your plan is better than God's plan. You want to say, oh, I want to see people saved. I want to do this. I want to do that. Oh, I want to get into ministry. But you want to do it your way. So what do you do? The twilight zone. That's where you live. But it's he that doeth truth. It's not what you say, but what you do. In any given situation, any problem that you have, I don't care if it's an issue that you're having with your own. I don't care if it's a problem you're having with somebody else. You know how you solve it? You come to a book, you sit down, and you turn on the lights. Don't try to figure it out yourself. Don't try to presume where somebody else is at. Sit down with that person. If you've got a grievance, you've got an issue, sit down with that person and just turn on the light and let the light be the light. You know why people won't do that? (laughs) Just guess. When a parent comes down the steps to check on their kids, which you all ought to do, You come around a corner and you say, what are you doing? Now, the answer can be good or bad. But when God checks on us and says, hey, what are you doing? The answer should be, what am I doing, God? I'm doing truth. I'm doing truth. I'm doing truth in my mind, in my heart, in my spirit, in every aspect of my life. And to the best of my ability, I'm doing what 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says, walking in the light as he is in the light, having fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. 
The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, that we as Christians are to give no place to the devil. You know what that place will be? It'll be the place between what God tells you to do and what you actually do. And the space between those two is where the devil's playground is because you give him place. The way you shut down the devil was the same way that Jesus did in Matthew chapter 4. Every time the devil came to him, he didn't argue. He didn't get into a philosophical discussion. He just said, it is written. Because the greatest defense you got against the darkness is doing truth. Now, maybe you see now that as we get through the book of John, the, the, far, the farther we get into this book, the deeper it's going to get into you. The more you get into this book, the more the light of this book gets into your life. And it always exposes. And when a person rejects the light of God, as the old evangelist used to say, light rejected becomes lightning. And you face God's judgment. The more we get into the light of the God's word, the more it will define us and your life and my life is nothing more than a redefining as we move up the levels. God has a specific protocol for us as Christians and it's based on truth and light and the farther we go up into it, the more it exposes who we are and we have to take the reproof and correct it and then get the instructions in righteousness. And when God's people won't follow the light or they want to pick and choose what part of the light they want, <laughs> boy, do they do that. So they can pretend they're okay, escape reproof. That's when they invent the twilight zone of Christianity. And when reproof crumbs, they go to another church or they hide out. And if you stay with the book in all things and you grow through the book and you get light after light after light on the issues and you follow the principle, it's so simple. Doctrine equals truth, which equals light. And when it's applied through preaching, it will approve us. So we can get it corrected and then God can give us instructions in righteousness. And we reject the biblical reproof, and we don't, don't kid yourself, you're now in darkness. And you're dead in your tracks, and you just, the lights go out. You have to do with truth. You get on an issue, in an issue, open the book, and get God's light on it. Because the Bible says, as I gave you this last week or the week before, Psalms 119, verse 30, at the entrance of thy word giveth light. And when a child of God won't do that and you reject the truth, you close the book and the lights go out. And that's why, from that point on, you got to make your ministry work. You got to finagle things. You got to hook up with this or with that. You now have to do it. And boy, I've seen pastors like that and I've seen Christians like that. You're now in control of your own ministry and you're making things happen. You're making phone calls. You're doing this. You're doing that. You're now trying to keep it alive because you know why? God's not part of it. 
anything that you got to sustain and keep going, you better take a long look at it. It's a thing where if God is not the author of it, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain and build it. If God isn't using you through your New Testament local church to put you where he wants you to be, then you're out there flapping in the wind all by yourself. And it's you who are doing it, not the Lord. Because that Bible is very clear that the problem is reproof. You have got to deal with things and it get the, restruct, get the correction and then get the instruction in righteousness. And you reject that truth, you're in darkness. And now, you're a child of God that has already, you, you've defined yourself. And now what you do is you criticize others to make you look good. You put the blame of your failures on somebody else. I mean, I, it even goes down that I've had people come to me over the years and say, and I've told you this before, you know, try to blame me because they don't have anybody to work with. They blame me because, well, why don't you give me somebody to disciple? Or why don't you give me this? Or why don't you give me that? Well, you know what? If God was really in your world, if you need me to be the Holy Spirit of God in your life, you're in sad shape. I can't remember the last time I've given somebody somebody to work with. You know why? Because you're here and you're engaged, and uh, that's just the way it goes today. Boy, it's, it's terrible. It's terrible. Doeth truth. And it isn't about what you say you believe. It isn't about how you preach what you believe. It isn't about how you put it out there, who you are, and what you really believe, and, oh, I got the truth. But do you do truth? And you can't do truth on your terms have to do it on God's. John's a great book. We, let me know. Send me secret messages. We still have time to switch to an easier book. <laughs> Let's have a word of prayer. We'll be dismissed.